to you from the AT&T Podcast Studio. This is Long Story Short. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Two women who died in jail waiting for mental health assessments inspired reporter Whitney Bryan's recent investigation. She wanted to know who died in Oklahoma's county jails, how they ended up there in the first place, and what killed them. And she's here today with some answers published uh, that big story and several others that went with it in a series recently. Uh, and in a break from our usual format on Long Story Short, we have a guest today, Captain Reese Lane, who runs the Payne County Jail, is uh, with us today. He's going to talk a little bit about how they do things in Payne County. And for those of you who are regular listeners, uh, we are not doing three, five or six minute segments today. This is going to be uh, a one segment podcast uh, because there was so much territory to cover. We just couldn't do it in five or six minutes. So with that, let's get started. Whitney, uh, you spent about a year on this investigation. It resulted in multiple stories. Maybe you can just kind of give us a refresher of uh, what you did in 2023 and, and hit the highlights of what you learned. Sure. Well, Ted, as you know, I really started down this path of um, looking into how people with mental illness end up in jails and what happens to them once they get there. Uh, this reporting was inspired by Shannon Hanchett and Catherine Milano, who died awaiting mental health care in the Cleveland County Jail back in December of 2022. And really, I just wanted to know how often is this happening? How often are people being arrested in crisis and then left without care that's resulting in their death? What we found was this is pretty frequent. Uh, ultimately, I learned that of all of the people who died in jails in 2022, more than half of them died because of untreated mental health conditions or substance abuse conditions. So what we also found was there's really no one in Oklahoma tracking these deaths. There are a few agencies who should be tracking them who are tracking some of those deaths, but there was no um, overall you know, database where we could easily look and see where people were dying in jails and what was happening to them. So that took the bulk of my year of reporting to you know, create that database and start learning what was happening to folks. And of course, along the way, you know, we, we published a few stories here and there about some specific cases like Pottawatomie County Jail, where we found that they were covering up the deaths of people in their care. And of course, those were people with mental health and medical, very, you know, very severe conditions that needed treatment and, and were not getting it. Well, and let's uh, just remind everybody kind of what we found there for a second. Um, you mentioned that there is no centralized database that uh, tracks deaths in county jails uh, around the state. Um, what's supposed to happen when there's a death at a jail? 
Right. So when someone dies in a jail's custody, whether that's physically inside the jail or maybe they're taken to a nearby hospital and they die in the hospital, but are ultimately still in the jail's care in their responsibility, then the jail is obligated to report that to the state health department. So the state health department, you know, they um, inspect jails annually. They monitor health and safety conditions at all county jails across the state. And so when someone dies or is even injured, um, attempts suicide, there are a lot of things that a jail has to report to the health department, including a death. So in the case of Pottawatomie County Jail, what we found was they were not reporting those deaths. They were not reporting injuries. They were not reporting suicide attempts. Um, they were just omitting, avoiding sending those reports to the state. And uh, when a death is reported, then the health department is supposed to conduct an inspection and do a report of their own, right? Right. So the health department does those annual inspections, uh, just like most, you know, agencies are inspected once a year to make sure things are, you know, going as they should. But once a death is reported or a serious injury, any of those things they have to report, it should trigger an additional investigation from the health department. So then, you know, those same inspectors come out and they look at logs to make sure that employees were, you know, doing what they should have been doing. Folks who are on suicide watch or um, critical watch for some reason, maybe it's a medical condition, they're supposed to be, you know, eyes set on them by an employee every 15 minutes, typically. So a lot of times we'll learn that those site checks get missed, the logs aren't kept, and that's something that jails often get cited for when inspectors come in to look at what happened in the case of a death or a serious injury. And, you know, not everybody is familiar with how uh, detention works. So we just want to make clear that your investigation was limited to Oklahoma's county jails. We're not talking about the Department of Corrections or the prison system or any private prisons. We're only talking about county jails, which is people uh, waiting for trial, waiting to be transported or people convicted of misdemeanors serving a year or less. Right. Absolutely. And I think that's a really important distinction that sometimes get missed in these conversations. So to reiterate, a lot of these folks are presumed innocent people who are dying. So many of the folks that we've written about, many of the folks who died in a jail in 2022, um, as we surveyed, those folks had some of them not been charged at all. Some of them died before charges could have even been filed. Some of them had been charged but not convicted. Um, there were a few that had been convicted and were waiting to move on to DOC to a prison or were serving, as you suggested, um, you know, shorter sentences in the jail. But absolutely, these are folks who um, have been arrested and sent to a jail but have not yet been moved on to the prison system. All right. Uh, now, uh, before we we introduce Captain Lane, can you just kind of give us a um, sort of a, a broad survey of the findings? Um, what were the patterns that that emerged? What kind of repetitive things did you see in the course of the investigation? Right. A lot of the repetitive things that we were seeing um, were untreated mental health and substance abuse. So so that's where the story really started. That was the inspiration for the story and kind of my hypothesis, so to speak, going into this was that those issues were 
causing or at least contributing significantly to these people's demise. And in all jails across the state who had someone who died in their custody in 2022, um, at least one, if not more of those people suffered from untreated mental health and substance use disorder. So we're talking about people who are coming into the jail um, high on some sort of substance and die during withdrawals. Uh, maybe it's someone who comes in in crisis, uh, Shannon Hanchett, a lot of people are familiar with her story in Cleveland County is a good example of this. She came in, you know, hallucinating and uh, essentially not not being able to think straight and, and function. She died in the jail uh, about two weeks after she got there. Some of these folks died within hours of being at the jail because they didn't receive medical or mental health care that they needed. So in a lot of cases, um, these things are, are spiraling out of control very quickly. And as that's happening, the people responsible for these folks who are in crisis, they're detention officers. These are, you know, often young uh, workers who have had fairly minimal training, you know, 30, maybe 40 hours of training. And it's very few hours are based on, you know, treating mental health and substance use addiction, that kind of thing. So um, it's really just this, this chaos of putting people in extreme crisis in the hands of workers who don't have experience helping those folks. Well, and that's uh, certainly one of the big questions that uh, not only came up in your investigation, but that has been coming up for for decades in Oklahoma. Um, you know, I think uh, I've been involved in stories on on the topic of how people end up in jail for uh, at least 15 years uh, off and on. And um, I think that's the point probably we want to at least um, give a brief introduction to here is uh, you would think, uh, I think most people would think that if um, someone dials 911 and, and their uh, first responders, usually police arrive and see someone as clearly in the throes of a mental health crisis. Um, I think most people assume uh, that that person is taken to some kind of treatment facility, that they go to a hospital or they go to a mental health facility of some kind um, and are handed over to a doctor who can help get them stabilized. Uh, but that isn't necessarily what happens in Oklahoma, is it? Right. Well, uh, one of the tricks here in Oklahoma that I found to answering that question is that there really is not a consistent process for how folks like that should be responded to. Um, each law enforcement agency that responds to those kind of calls sort of has their own process. And, you know, even that process that might be created by the police department or the sheriff's department, um, it's not much of a process in many cases. It's sort of up to the officer generally to decide what's best for that particular situation. So you do have cases where uh, someone who's in a, a mental health crisis, let's say they're hallucinating and, um, as you suggested, you know, very clearly um, having some sort of, you know, episode, uh, maybe psychosis. There are cases where a police officer will take that person to a mental health facility or a hospital and, you know, hand them over to doctors and nurses 
who then can do an assessment and determine where that person should be placed and what kind of help they need. The big hiccup in that situation is that these folks, again, they're in crisis, they're hallucinating, they're often paranoid, um, they're, you know, they're not thinking straight. And so they're acting uh, accordingly. They're frightened and police can often escalate that situation. So in some cases, people are taken to a hospital and then maybe, you know, push a nurse, let's say that happened in one of these cases that we wrote about, or maybe they, you know, break some equipment. Um, In the case of a man named Ronald Given, who died in the Pottawatomie County Jail, that happened to him. He was taken to a hospital while he was um, in crisis. He was waiting for a mental health bed to open up. Uh, where he could go and get treatment. And while he was waiting, he uh, had another episode. He pushed an officer's shoulder and the officer arrested him and took him to jail. So even in that, that's sort of the best case scenario, right, is they end up in a hospital. But even those situations don't always end up uh, with the person staying there. In some cases, law enforcement can't do anything. They have no reason to detain the person against their will. And so they have to leave the person alone if the person does not agree to go get treatment. Um, So what ends up happening a lot of times is police will find a reason to detain the person. And that is usually how they end up in handcuffs being arrested. Once they find a reason to arrest them, then they have a charge that could potentially be filed. And that sort of leads them to take the person to a jail instead of a hospital. Well, in the course of your reporting, you covered um, a lot of different scenarios. And you mentioned Ronald Givens, where uh, it seems like, you know, the officers involved there were trying to do what uh, I think most uh, knowledgeable people on this topic would say was the right thing, right? Clearly uh, experiencing some psychosis of some kind, took him to a hospital, were waiting with him for a bed to open up. Um, when he had another break, uh, made physical contact with the officer, and and then they uh, took him to jail instead, where uh, things went badly, and and he died um, uh, in his cell at the, the hands of some uh, some uh, jail officers. Um, but you also wrote about uh, another one that uh, that comes to mind, where it sure seemed like the officers weren't. Um, doing something that we we suspect is is more common than we know because there isn't much of a paper trail um, where uh, they had a, a person known to them. They had dealt with him before on several times. Uh, he showed up um, threatening a family member on the doorstep. Uh, she was scared of uh, of her own child. Called nine one one. Police showed up. Remind us what happened in that incident. Right. So we put that story together over the summer, and as you suggested, what I found was that uh, Oklahoma City police were called out to this woman's house. A mother, as you suggested, she called police because her son Ernest Antwine was on her front porch. She believed he was high on PCP. Um, he had a, you know, a history of um, drug charges and, and related charges. He had been in contact with police uh, more than 20 times prior to this. He had been arrested many times. 
um, the police in in their report said they knew who this guy was. They knew the address. They'd been there before. And they arrived at her home uh, where he was on the porch and essentially had a conversation with him. I watched some video of this interaction and it's fairly calm, really. Um, Ernest is is clearly not following the line of questioning from officers. He's confused, um, but he's sitting pretty calmly on the porch for the most part. And the officers are conversing with him about, you know, why he's there and what's going on. And it seems they have no reason to arrest him. He's, he's not being violent. He's not breaking a, a law at this point. But an officer decides they're going to take him to a different location. And, and he agrees to this because they convince him mom doesn't want him there and he would be considered trespassing if he didn't leave. So the officer puts him in the back of his patrol car and drives off. And that's where the video ends. But as we learn... Is he handcuffed? He is handcuffed. Yes, he is handcuffed and put in the patrol car. So I believe they use trespassing as the, you know, criminal act here to detain Ernest against his will. So he gets in the back of the patrol car and they leave and the officer then drives him to what we hear later in this story referred to as no man's land. So he drives out to Sooner Road uh, which is the border of Oklahoma City Police Jurisdiction and uh, Oklahoma County Sheriff's Jurisdiction. And he drops him off on the side of the road. He leaves Ernest there, uh, high on PCP, on a, uh, you know, sweltering summer day. Um, he's sweating. We hear from some witnesses. And he's left in the middle of the road. There's no sidewalk, no shoulder. And five minutes later... He walks out into the street and is hit by a truck that's driving on Sooner Road. So this is one of those situations that, as you said, we don't know how often this happens because there's little to no paper trail. Uh, the officer did not file a report for that. We found out about it because a Oklahoma County deputy responded to the death. He called up the Oklahoma City police officer and included some of that in his report. Yeah, otherwise there would have been no no record of how he got out there on Sooner Road, right? That's right. Okay. So we've seen, I, uh, I think, uh, fair to say, we've seen uh, some jurisdictions, some police departments uh, really try to address this problem with CIT training and um, uh, co-response with mental health professionals. There have been efforts, uh, especially in the urban uh, police departments to try to find a better way to um, uh, interact with with people in the middle of a crisis. Um, and uh, we've seen some attempts certainly to do the right thing, um, to, to try to get them treatment. We've heard stories about police officers spending their entire shift driving someone to another state uh, to find them a mental health bed because there were insufficient beds available in Oklahoma. Right. Um, but we've also heard a lot of uh, tragic stories where um, uh, maybe the, the person in the middle of a crisis could have been approached differently, treated differently, um, and ended up uh, with a much more positive outcome than the way things went. But you're... you're 
um, investigation focused more on what happened after they got to the jail, uh, besides how they got to the jail. That's right. And in the course of that, we found uh, some very disturbing stories, um, uh, multiple stories in the case of Pottawatomie County, but uh, other jails as well. And the good news in that was uh, in the course of the investigation, we found one jail uh, that seemed like they were doing everything right, right? We found a, a good news uh, elements of this where uh, we found kind of a model in Payne County where, uh, boy, if you were going to write a description of how maybe we would hope uh, things are done, uh, Payne County had a pretty good system in place to do it. And the guy that runs that system is uh, here with us. Uh, Captain Reese Lane is here. He runs the uh, Payne County Jail has been there uh, quite a while and has um, uh, most of his career spent um, in treatment units and, and dealing with people experiencing mental health who are being detained in one way or another. So, Captain Lane, uh, welcome to Long Story Short. Thanks for coming down today. Oh, thank you for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about... Um, uh, we would just like to hear it from from sort of your side of the door, right? When uh, when police bring someone to to your jail who uh, is clearly struggling with uh, mental health uh, in crisis, or or you have other reason to be concerned about their mental health, um, tell us how you handle that, and maybe tell us a little bit about about uh, what brought you to your methods. Okay, um, it's not typically thought of as a mandate for the sheriff's office or the county jail to be in the mental health business. Um, we feel like that was thrust on us with without asking, without funding, without anything we needed to do it, and without training. And we all resisted it. We all resisted it. And there came a time when... Uh, a lady was brought to my jail for a very low-level misdemeanor, um, and I got there the next morning, and I went to the district attorney, and I said, this is mental health. This is not a crime. She don't belong in jail. Let me get her some help. And he said, yes, by all means. And he tore the affidavit up right there. Um, she will not be charged. So I EOD'd her. And she was shipped to a mental health facility, and I went back. I went back to work, went home, got up the next morning and came in, and I found out before lunch that she had went to the mental health facility, spent the night, told them everything they wanted to hear, been released, and was dead of an overdose already within 24 hours of me going to the, to the DA. And that's kind of when I, I changed my outlook. They're going to come to us. They're going to be brought to us. I have nothing but good uh, good things to say about the arresting officers. I think um, public safety is what they do, and these people are part of the public. So I think a lot of times they're brought to the county jail for their own safety. Um, we meet them at the door. Part of the intake screening process is health care. So we had a psychiatrist and a psychologist added to our health care. The psychologist came up with 15 more questions 
specifically for mental health above and beyond what we already had. And it kind of helps us pick the red flags out and give them right straight over to medical. Medical will put them in front of the psychiatrist and the psychologist, hopefully get them on some meds, medications. Um, and we've, we've opened up a housing unit strictly for them where you're locked down if you, if you resist us. We're, we're going to put you in jail and you're going to be locked down 23 hours a day. If you take your medicine and you try to work with us, we will help you get back to where you need to be. And then you'll have uh, the same freedom as general population. Um, beyond that, the state has started uh, contracting with the community providers and ours is Grand Mental Health. So the forensic center in Veneta, where there aren't near enough beds to get all the folks competent. I mean, that sometimes they wait for over a year. Uh, contracts with Grand Mental Health to treat them at the county jail facilities. Again, most people see that as a as a mandate that we're now we're doing the work of some other agency. And I think county jails are used to that kind of stuff being put on them. We, I moved a table in, and those the people from Grand Mental Health now work in my office with me, two or three days a week. So instead of resisting them, um, I'm buying coffee and <laughs> cookies and trying to make them as welcome as they can be, and that has been pretty successful. Um, they're getting them competent at a rate much faster than than we were when we had to wait on a bed at Vanita. Some of them are beyond us. Some of them you have to take to Vanita because they can use methodology that we're not allowed to do in the county jail. Um, other than that, uh, Grand Mental Health also offers a way to keep up with these folks after they're released. One of them is assisted outpatient treatment, in which case you they actually have to go before a judge and the judge has to take it up and order it. And they're given an iPad and uh, a set of rules that they have to live by, kind of like drug court. Um, and they have to talk to Grand Mental Health every day. And if they're on medications, they have to take their medications every day. And then Grand is to uh, report back to the court periodically on how well they're doing and hopefully when they complete that program, which I believe is four months long, uh, Grand Mental Health also offers something called the PAC team, which tracks offenders. Uh, I'm sorry, it doesn't track offenders. It, it tracks their patients, and it tracks them every day. They will go find you and, and, and try to encourage you to take your medication and make sure you've got it. So just one little thing at a time, you grab everything you can, you try to make things work together. And I mean, you have meetings, you have meetings with the DA and with your providers and they don't speak law enforcement and law enforcement doesn't speak mental health and they've got their rules and we've got our rules 
And the meetings aren't fun a lot of times. They leave mad, we leave mad, but we come back and we go forward. And so hopefully um, we are working toward a countywide uh, system, countywide programming that serves everyone and benefits everyone. The last thing I guess we do that helps so much is the sheriff agreed to hire a programs manager. The, dis the uh, district attorney hired a diversionary officer. So these two people work together and help get a bed, help uh, get some residential housing, help get all the things that these people don't have. They don't have an ID, most of them. You can't do anything without an ID. Um, so little by little, we move forward. And, you know, our mandate is protect and serve. And, and these are people, same as you and me. They're just not heard much. They don't really have anyone speaking for them except Whitney. So tell me. With, you know, some extra uh, personnel in place, some some mental health expertise right there in the jail, as you described, um, some cooperation from the district attorney and, and others. Um, what kind of results are you seeing? How are things different? Different than they were? Different than they were earlier in your career, even in other places. But how, how is this helping? Well, we've heard the term revolving door, right? Um, someone gets arrested probably for something like trespassing. The, the cop has no options. He's got to do something with them. He brings them to the county jail. They're there long enough for us to get them detoxed and started on some psychotropics, whatever, whatever they need. I mean, we're not just passing pills around. we got a psychiatrist deciding what they need and adjusting it. So we get them, we get them back into the real world where we can talk to them and we can deal with them. And, and most of them are, are pretty likable, really, when you do get them back there. Um, but trespassing don't carry much time. So they go before the court and they're released and they're right straight back to the flop house or whatever environment they came from. Obviously, it's not very healthy. And before long, they've committed another minor felony and another cop shows up or deputy and they have to do something with them because now they are strung out again. Now they've lost a lot of weight. Now they look, you know, their eyes are drawn. You, you know, they look bad. They're in, they're in crisis. So the choice is you can take them to a crisis center where they're going to say exactly what you want them to say until you leave, and then they're going to say, I want to, I want to leave, and no one can stop that. So they're better off at the county jail, so that's where they bring them. They bring them to the county jail, and we start over. Between the PAC team, assisted outpatient treatment, diversionary uh, program, and the sheriff's office programming, we're starting to see that revolving door slow down and it's grueling and it's slow and you, you know there are no there's no overnight miracles 
But I would say the greatest statistic I could give you would be um, when we started with our programs manager, we started making referrals to Grand Mental Health. We want you to go follow up with them when you're released from jail. There came a time about a year and a half ago when we hit 100%. 100% of the inmates that we told we thought they could benefit went and followed up. And it's been up, it's been close to 100 ever since. So I would say that's probably the most encouraging thing we've seen. How are you paying for it, right? I mean, you're, We've got uh, more personnel, mental health personnel, related personnel at the jail, uh, right? They're they're collecting salaries. Uh, Grand Mental Health is is in some cases handing out uh, iPads or whatever, right? And the 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 uh, pushback uh, in a lot of counties is going to be, we don't have the money for that. We can barely pay jailers. How do you expect us to pay for this? How are you guys doing it? And thank you for asking me that because. Um, we're blessed in Payne County. We have a major university in Stillwater. Um, we have resources. Uh, we have a budget that allows for some of those kind of things. Um, Grand Mental Health uh, has uh, joined with the Department of Mental Health and the Forensic Center, and I think the money's for the for the iPads probably come from the Department of Mental Health. Um, as far as how do you pay for it, try not to be short-sighted. Uh, if these people don't, don't come back to jail, that's money saved, a lot of money saved. Um, and I don't take credit for it, but I'll tell you right now, our account's probably down 75 inmates from where it was. Not very long ago. What was it? Uh, it's, been was around, it? it's been up around 300. It's um, around 225 now. So something something's causing that. Can I take credit for it? Mm, probably not. I don't know. You can't. It, it takes more. You have to hire more and more and more people to track more and more and more data. And so we've got, we've got some. We track what we can, but I can't, I can't put on a whole squad of people just to track our data. Well, but it's a, a 25% reduction in detainees. That's, that's a huge percentage. Um, you but, know, but I don't know that my, I don't know that my right. programs did all that. Sure. But even if, if you can't, it's, it's like we talk about with news stories all the time and, and uh, what kind of outcome the news story may have had, we never know for sure. Um, or we don't know what our part uh, in it was. Um, but usually we have a pretty good idea that it, it contributed in, in some way, right? It's usually not just a coincidence. Not just a coincidence. We can't always quantify exactly, you know, A led to B, led to C, or uh, you know, if we were the proximate cause of uh, this outcome, but it, we usually have a pretty good idea, like I'm sure you do, that yes. we had a hand in it, right? Sometimes a bigger hand than others, but but we know we contributed, right? That's what we're for. Um, Make things better. Terry White, who now runs uh, uh, Mental Health uh, Association in Oklahoma and was the longtime uh, director of the um, state mental health department. Um, you know, she used to rattle off numbers uh, that 
uh, you bring to mind about what it costs to incarcerate someone versus what it costs to get them treatment. And of course, she was she was referring more to DOC and prison sentences than uh, she was county jails because that's that's its own set of problems, right? But uh, even ten years ago. Um, you know, it was uh, $19,000 or so to incarcerate somebody at DOC for a year. And if they were getting, if they required mental health treatment uh, while they were there, uh, it would run more, right? $22,000 a year up to $26,000 a year to incarcerate somebody that needed mental health care. And, and her battle cry was always, we can treat them for $5,000 a year. So why why not give them to us, spend $5,000 on treatment uh, instead of $25,000 to incarcerate them where they just crowd jails and, and don't get any better or crowd prisons uh, in that case. And <clears throat> I kind of hear you making the same case that if we spend the money to help them rather than to detain them and incarcerate them, um, eventually we at least break even, right? <laughs> that that uh, the cost to help them is going to balance out with, with the cost of jailing them. Is that uh, more or less where you're headed? That is my belief. And uh, I'm going to take you down a, a money trail here. House Bill 780 and 781. Um, we're well acquainted with this. Yes, we've written about these. So the possession of methamphetamine, possession of heroin, uh, possession of cocaine that used to be a felony and would get people to the Department of Corrections now is a misdemeanor. And my belief is that we're trying to, when I say we, I mean they because I don't make any decisions, right? But we're they are, the state of Oklahoma wants things handled at the lowest possible level, at the community level, which I think in the long run makes sense to me. There's no one-size-fits-all. One What'll work in Payne County won't work in Love County. It won't work in Pottawatomie County. It won't work in McCurtain County. Everyone has to develop their own programming. And so I think the Forensic Center, Grand Mental Health, the Department of Mental Health, all partnering together and making some grant money available, by the way, to build these programs is Oklahoma's uh, future to treat this stuff at a community level instead of trying to make one great big program where uh, one size fits all that has not worked very well. I mean, we, we get the bad guys off the street, maybe. Public safety goes up if they're locked up in prison. But when they get out, what what they are more often than not is a better criminal than they were when they went in. Now they had a meth recipe. Now they got a good meth recipe, right? So I think uh, Oklahoma's headed toward the Department of Mental Health networking through the state through the county jails if I'm making sense to you. No, I get it. But I, I think there's some pushback to that, right? Tulsa County comes to mind where, uh, you know, the, the Tulsa County jail has said, we are not in the mental health business. We're just not going to do it. And, and I, I get that. Um, and, and I support their stance. I, I used to feel that way too. We all did. And, 
Uh, I know Tulsa County's people, and they're great. And they lead uh, the Sheriff's Association in a lot of ways. But in my county, um, no, there's no, no one speaks for these mentally ill people. And there's so many of them, and there's more every year. So if we don't do it, then what? Then you have, you have these deaths. Okay, a county jail's mandate is keep people as healthy as they were when they got there. You don't have to fix their teeth. You don't have to cure their illness, but you can't let them deteriorate. Yeah, you can't let them deteriorate. Well, that may be, that's, a coach would call that playing not to lose. So what we're trying to do at Payne County is, is play to win. And provide where mental health is concerned, we provide more of community care than institutional care. Um, I'm not saying I'm right and Tulsa's wrong. Absolutely not. They've got some very intelligent people running that over there, and um, I'm just figuring it out as best I can. Well, we do. I, I, there's certainly been some conversation. The Tulsa County stance has been an attempt to force the state's hand, um, not so much a, a, a lack of caring about uh, some of the people they encounter, but to um, uh, try to force the state's hand to make more care available uh, and make more beds available and not put all the uh, not put all the weight on the county jails. So it, yeah, and so. God bless them for doing that. And I think an important distinction here as we're talking about Tulsa County is, you know, without going down a rabbit hole, a lot of the conversation around Tulsa County Jail right now is specific to something called competency restoration. So just a, a quick baseline here. There's a difference between someone who is, let's say, in psychosis um, maybe, you know, pushes a, a healthcare worker at a hospital and ends up in the Payne County Jail or the Tulsa County Jail. And someone who is found incompetent to stand trial, someone found incompetent to stand trial has been has been arrested. It's maybe the same person, but typically months later is assessed by someone specifically trained in competency who has determined that that person cannot understand the court system, the criminal justice system, well enough to aid in their own defense. So it is very specific um, label that's put on these folks saying they don't understand what's happening and therefore we can't push them through the criminal justice system because they're, you know, they're not able to help themselves in this defense. So that person then requires competency restoration, which happens often in Venita at the Forensic Center, which you, you heard Reese mention a little bit earlier. That is specifically what the Tulsa County Sheriff is pushing back against. The State Department of Mental Health wants to provide that competency restoration to help someone become useful in their own defense and understand the criminal justice system inside the jail while they're in the Tulsa County Jail. Um, however, 
that pushback is not affecting people who have have not been through this competency process. So people who, you know, maybe were arrested for possession of of drugs and came in, you know, um, needing to detox and went through withdrawals, those folks are still coming through the Tulsa County Jail. So I think that's an important distinction because competency is is very specific to the court system. It's a very specific kind of restoration and is sort of being separated out from the larger group of people with mental health and substance use conditions that end up in jail. So I I think that's an important distinction that if he were here, the Tulsa County Sheriff would raise his hand and say, "Uh, it's a very specific group of folks that we don't think should be here. In uh, the course of your stories, one of the uh, things that came up in multiple jail death uh, cases was the uh, failure to check on them on schedule, right? That the um, schedule that, that we see most often is every 15 minutes, whether they're on suicide watch or uh, mental health crisis or, or some other rather extreme vulnerability. And, and you found multiple cases where um, uh, the policy was to uh, visually check on that particular detainee every 15 minutes, and in some cases, uh, went hours uh, without checking on that person. Um, and in one case, they'd been been checked on, uh, died shortly after that check, and nobody knew they were dead for, for a couple of hours because uh, no one was was making those rounds. Um, so uh, it, is is that a fair assessment? Was that a, a scenario that you saw repeated? Uh, Whitney is the question for you. And then uh, Captain Lane, the question for you is, uh, how important is it to stick to that schedule, whether it's every 15 minutes or every 12 minutes, whatever the schedule is, uh, how important is that in, in keeping uh, detainees in crisis safe? Well, this is absolutely something that we see on repeat. I mentioned Shannon Hanchett earlier. Um, this was something we found in in her death that uh, jailers at the Cleveland County Jail were not checking on her every 15 minutes or less. So the, the policy at that jail was um, on a basically an offset rotation of no more than 15 minutes. So it's not, you know, every 15 minutes put eyes on them. It is at the bare minimum, 15 minutes. And you have to do it on a rotating schedule that's kind of sporadic so the person doesn't know when you're coming, you know, is a very specific policy. What I will say is I've seen this in almost every jail that I've reported on uh, a death. This is a very common, in fact, it's the most common violation that the health department finds when it goes to these inspections in jails. Uh, pretty much every year, this is this is the most frequent. What I will say is, by state law, jails have to check, uh, put eyes on inmates every sixty minutes or less. There is no statewide requirement for people in critical condition or on suicide watch or on medical watch, right? Uh, critical condition is kind of the overarching term that encompasses these folks who, who need more attention. There is no state standard for this. So jails are setting their own policies. 
in Cleveland County, 15 minutes is the policy in their handbook. But technically, they are not violating a state law if they are checking on someone like Shannon, someone like Keisha, who died at the the Payne County Jail years ago, who inspired all this change. The jails are not violating those terms if they check on the person every 59 minutes, even if they're on suicide watch. They're not violating law, but they're violating their own policy, right? And and that policy, we would assume, was written for a good reason. Correct. If they have a policy that fits into that 15-minute window, which many of the larger and more urban jails have adopted that policy, not every jail has the same policy across the state. Reese, what do you think? That's a tough one. Every 15 minutes is would be considered best practice. It's kind of an industry standard. Uh, that's what we do um, in every 60 minutes for general population. Uh, at our jail, if you go over 60 minutes, um, we need a, a report from a supervisor saying why you did. The last in-custody death we had it was 61 minutes because we had fights to break up and people to people to take care of medically. And um, it, it is hard. It's hard to maintain that 100% of the time. If you're not doing it because you're watching Netflix or playing checkers, um, that's a problem. If you're not doing it because there's so much to do and there's so many surprises and there's so many decisions you have to make. Um, What's important now? What's the most important thing I I need to be doing right now? Um, It's as as hard on the staff as it is on the people making the policy and trying to figure it out. Uh, I can tell you when you lose an inmate with these young officers, um, they don't take that. They don't take that well. I'm providing mental health for my officers these days as well as I am my in my inmates. Um, up to 12 hours free with, with nothing being written down. Um, they take it hard. They don't want it to happen. They take it personally. Um, everyone feels like they did something wrong, which is usually not the case. 15 minutes needs to happen. Every 15 minutes, you you need to lay eyes on them. Everyone has a different jail, a different makeup, a different physical plant. Um, I have cameras in all the, all the cells where I'll probably put someone if they're on suicide watch. And those cameras, there's a lot of people watching them. The control tower is watching them. Intake has them all the way around. People are watching them constantly. I've got You're them watching them in your office, as I learned. You have I a do. TV right there at your desk. Yeah, I try to see everything that goes on. Um, but bad things happen. And in county jails, when you take the most uh, unstable people in the community and concentrate them all in one place, you can be sure more bad things are going to happen there than than happen out in the community. So there's no good, easy answer for that. You need to be doing your site checks on time. You need to be doing your mental health and your suicide checks on time. You've got to document it. If you don't write it down, it did not happen. Um, 
and we almost always do. But I've I've kind of got to come to the rescue of of the officers in these places because I know what it does to them when you lose an inmate. I mean, I've had to deal with them. I've had to take care of them. Um, so do your sight checks. <laughs> do them on time. Write them down. And uh, if you can't, write down why you didn't. Well, you're really touching on on one of the findings um, that was the part of this most recent article was the just the understaffing of jails across the state. Yes. County jails are are almost always understaffed, and in the case of a lot of these jails, you know, you're you're mentioning the, these policies of every 15 minute checks, um, but you know, as you stated, there's a lot happening in the jail that requires the attention of these jailers. And on top of that, you don't have enough jailers often to deal with sort of the expected um, things that you need to do on a day-to-day basis, let alone if you have something like a a fight breakout or someone, you know, attempts suicide, or if you have someone you didn't know was on drugs who all of a sudden starts going through a withdrawal. I mean, these are things that are happening constantly in jails um, where there just isn't enough staff to handle those situations. And then on top of that, you, you mentioned the mental health of the jailers themselves. These are very difficult situations to be in uh, day in and day out. These are hard jobs, which increases the turnover. Uh, you know, people are leaving because of, of the strain and the stress Um, that they face every day at work, which then means you're getting a lot of younger people applying for these jobs, not often well-experienced jailers. So these things really compound the um, sort of ill-equipped and understaffed nature of county jails that then leads into, you know, the lack of sight checks and the um, just maybe misunderstanding of the best way to handle these extremely difficult situations. I'd like to kind of hear it from you because we've, we've written about this a lot. It comes up in almost every conversation about jails. Uh, how hard is it for you to recruit uh, officers, uh, jailers? Um, what's their demographic? How old are they? What's their education level and how much do they get paid? They don't get paid enough, but they're, they're, they get paid all we can pay them. Right. And that, I mean, they're, they're public employees, so it's right. their, their pay is public record. So don't be bashful. I believe we're starting our jail staff at 2600 a month right now, which sounds pretty good until you, until you have uh, the kind of people up in your face that they have up in their face for 12 hours at a time. Um, recruitment's very difficult. We work with the Votex. Uh, we actually train. We teach their classes, some of them. Um, go to the, every job fair we can find, set up a booth, set up a booth at the county fair, get out there and beat the brush all we can trying to recruit people. But I'm told every division of our sheriff's office is full right now, except detention. And our sheriff right now is trying to find new ways to retain what we've got and I better what, not say what are the qualifications? What do you what uh, what do you have to bring to the table to get hired for that job? Uh, you need a 
you need a driver's license and a high school education, and then we're going to do a pretty exhaustive background check on you. Um, you have to be good. You have to be good people. Um, basically, if uh, if if you're problematic, if you've if you've had problems that would preclude you, we're going to find them out. And any any false or misleading statements on your application, you're just you're not going to get the job. So you have to be pretty stand up. Uh, you have to be you have to have it together pretty well, um, and then you have to be able to work for what we can pay you. And a lot of people use the jail as a springboard because they want to be in law enforcement, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's a great place to learn. You're going to learn how to deal with difficult people, learn how to write reports, learn courtroom procedures, learn all these things you need to know um, before you go to an academy. Um, and so we lose a lot to law enforcement. And when I say law enforcement, I mean street officers because we're all really law enforcement. Um, as far as age goes, we hire an awful lot of young people. Um, I like to go after the retired people, retired police officers, retired public servants of one kind or another. Um, they make good employees and uh, maybe they can't hold their own as well physically, but they've usually got enough experience and knowledge and training that they don't have to do some of the things that the younger officers have to do. That's my hope. I have to think that way because I'm getting pretty old myself. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think we've set a record for uh, Oklahoma Watch podcast time. Definitely. Um, uh, but maybe uh, from each of you, just a, a closing thought. You know, you've uh, covered this topic for a long time and, and intensely for the last year or so. Uh, you spent your whole career in uh, detention and in uh, one form or another. So, um uh, at Oklahoma Watch, one of the things we talk about a lot is solutions journalism and not only identifying uh, a problem that we have that maybe uh, could be made better, but we also try to look at how it could be made better um, and and find places that are engaging in best practices that could be a, a model for others who um, maybe could steal some of those ideas and, and improve their own situation. So, uh, Whitney, you spent a year or so on it. Uh, in in a couple of sentences, if you had a magic wand and and could make it better, what would be the first couple of things you you would do? I think what I've seen working um, are places like the Payne County Jail. So I won't go too far down that path because I know I know that's what you're going to speak to, Reese, but. I think the other thing I see lacking, not working well in pretty much every scenario, every jail that I've reported on, is the lack of oversight of county jails. So because these are county jails, we have 77 counties, which means we have 77 different jail directors who have 77 different oversight boards or county sheriffs 
who, you know, are the ones making sure things are running smoothly at the jail and the right people are in charge. And when something goes wrong, you know, someone is held accountable for that. And then above above that level, we have the state health department, who, of course, goes in and does these inspections. But by statute, the state health department has very few teeth. Um, They can, you know, cite these jails for a violation, but um, we've seen very few examples in the past. Oklahoma County Jail is really the the only notable recent example of the health department taking a stand, taking action against a county jail that they say, we've had enough, you've had enough violations, people are getting hurt and, and something has to change. No option. But otherwise, you know, we as we saw in the Pottawatomie County jail situation, um, they're not reporting to the state health department and the state health department is telling me, well, we can't make them. We can give them a violation and tell them they're supposed to do it and show them the statute, but they have to repeatedly, you know, violate the same statutes and rules in order for the, the state to take any action against them. So, I think the decentralized oversight seems to be a problem for jails that are not, for whatever reason it might be, you know, um, keeping people safe and keeping people alive. So that lack of accountability um, being addressed, I think, might make a huge difference in, in some counties that are having higher death rates and higher injury rates than others. And on the front end, more training, more beds, more uh, mental health care available so they never walk in the door in the first place. Oh, absolutely. If we're talking magic wand, you know, ideally we don't want people like Reese to have to think about how to care for someone who was experiencing a, a bipolar episode or was in psychosis. We want Reese to be thinking about, you know, people who are in actual danger to society, you know, the the quote unquote bad guys. Well, quickly, I, I think I've pretty well covered what we do and pretty much what we want to do. I'd like to see a more of a countywide partnership than we have now. Um, Although I think we what we have now is pretty good. Um, Maybe something you didn't expect me to say, public recognition for these young officers, because we are, they are very scrutinized. These jobs are hard to get, and these jobs are hard to keep. These these young people, they work hard. They're under more stress than human beings are made to be under. Uh, trauma is cumulative day in and day out. It, it builds up in them, and uh, they, they deserve more recognition than they get. So if I could ask for anything... I would say find a detention officer, shake their hand, and tell them thank you for your service. All right. Well, uh, Whitney Bryan, thank you. Captain Reese Lane from uh, the Payne County Jail, thanks so much for coming down and talking to us today. Uh, You can read uh, all of Whitney's work on this topic on our website, oklahomawatch.org. It's all there. Read it anytime you like. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you, Ted, and thanks, Reese, for joining us today. Thank you for having me.
You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This episode was recorded at the AT&T Podcast Studio. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.